When we say discipleship Methodist style, what do we mean? Well, we don't mean that Methodists believe fundamentally different things to all other Christians. That would be very dodgy. Uh, in some sense, you might describe the Methodist tradition as just an ordinary, brilliant, wonderful, basic Christianity. Because to say just ordinary Christianity is to not make out that ordinary Christianity is just brilliant and wonderful. But Methodists, uh, to use our official documents, cherish our place in the evangelical tradition among the Protestant Reformation, quote, end quote. But what that means is that all those things that are quintessentially Christian belief, Methodists say, yep, yeah, I believe that. So we're not some quirky, off-the-wall sect that has got a particular view of the second coming of Christ or we've got a particular view about pigeons or whatever. Yeah, you, you may laugh. John Wesley talked about Methodists as those who sought to return to what he called primitive Christianity, which was his phrase for saying, trying to get back to the passion and the authenticity of the kind of discipleship that you saw in the Acts of the Apostles and in the early church. Primitive meaning get back to how it was at the beginning. And therefore, he struggled, though he was a high churchman in the Church of England, with things that didn't seem to contribute to real, authentic, earthed Christian faith. But like all Christian traditions, Methodists have certain themes and moods and tones that make it what it is. And if you're a lifelong Methodist like me, you sort of start to not realize that. Uh, I realized how being a Methodist was subtle in mood and tone when I spent a whole summer in Germany many years ago among Lutherans. Now, there's nothing wrong with Lutherans at all. They're a great group of people, and we'd gone over there to a place called Herrenhut, which is part of the Moravian tradition, which gave birth, in some senses, to some of the ideas of Methodism. But to be the only Methodist in a group of 65 pastors I can tell you, suddenly I felt like a fish out of water. You know, you pronounce the Lord's Prayer with this extra line in it, or the line that's missing from Luke's Gospel. When you pause and you say something that you all think you know, it's done in a slightly different lilt. When you sing a hymn that you think everybody knows, they sing it to another blessed tune. And we sing our hymns to the wrong tune, don't we? I mean, if you were singing, and can it be, you'd sing it to a much different tune to we do. I want to talk about those moods and tones, therefore, within the overarching thing that Methodists are just ordinary, wonderful believers in a wonderful God. And I want to talk about three things. It's not often I do a three-point sermon, but I'm doing one this morning. First, Methodist discipleship has an evangelical spirit. Methodist discipleship has an evangelical spirit. We believe that Jesus came and lived and died and rose again and that he offers salvation to all. That there's not a soul on this earth and never has been who is beyond the saving and loving reach and power of God. Hence that oft-recited phrase about Methodism, all can be saved. We are not Calvinists in the sense that we believe that God predetermined from the beginning of time that that one shall be saved and that one shan't. 
there is, say Methodists, the opportunity under God's grace for every living soul to say yes and receive Christ and through receiving Christ to be saved in the New Testament sense of that word. So John Wesley went the length and breadth of this land many times over, first on a horse, then second in a carriage when his bones got a bit creaky, over a very long ministry and there was one repeated theme of that ministry. It occurs several hundred times in his lengthy journals. He gets to a place and he often says, I offered them Christ. And that came through a whole variety of means, very often by preaching in the open air, sometimes by starting a society in order that people might come, often from no church background whatsoever. Offering Christ is the heart of Methodism, and it stands at the heart of Methodist church life. Fellowship is a much vaunted term in Methodism, our being together. We've got hymns about it. But John Wesley would have us be quite clear that it is being together for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of sharing and offering Christ, not just for gathering together for its own sake. In fact, if the life of a Methodist church, including this one, is not about offering Christ in all sorts of different ways, then it's not in the fullest and complete sense a Methodist church at all. Offering Christ is in our Methodist blood and it's what Methodism was raised up for. Now I've got to be very careful this next bit because I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. And what I'm certainly not saying is that Methodism is better or I'm comparing it better and over other traditions. I'm making a comparison and then I'll tell you what, why at the end. But if you were to say to Baptists, our wonderful, vibrant brothers and sisters in Christ, dear Baptists, why did God raise you up in the first place? And they could turn around and they could start to tell you a story of an emergence of biblical passion and a stress upon the fact that only those people who should be baptized by the dominical sacrament of Christ into Christ's fellowship should be those who can say it for themselves. And they could point back to their origins in this country and in Europe and say that they were just about the most persecuted Christian grouping in the Middle Ages for these so-called extreme things that they believed. And so they would talk about that and they would say, therefore, we always take just one step further out from being locked into civic or secular power. We always are adamant that basically this piece of doctrine about baptism defines who we are. And we'd say, thank you, bless you for the ministry that you have around the world. Or if we were talking to Presbyterians or Congregationalists, Reformed churches as we now call them, we could say, dear Reformed brothers and sisters in Christ, how were you raised up by God? For, for what particular reason? And they would go back to a different part of history, slightly later than the Baptists, certainly in this land and in Europe, and they would tell tales of over a hundred years of dialogues and debates, but basically trying to get two things straight. Number one, what's a congregation and what is its power? And number two, who is a minister and what's their power? 
And therefore, what's the relationship between the presbyter and the people? And they construct their church in such a way that this has autonomy and this has authority. So we'd listen to that. Some of you will be interested in that. Some of you will be wondering when I'm going to get round to preaching. And they will say, that's, that's the context in which we became Christians, but we believe all that you do. And we'd say, that's really interesting. And we note the significant strand of Christianity you have brought to the United Kingdom over the last four centuries. Now, if you went to John Wesley or Charles Wesley or Fletcher of Maidley or even on a different continent, Francis Asbury, and you said, dear brothers, what, why was Methodism raised up? They wouldn't talk to you about whether or not this passage of scripture meant something or this sacrament had to be given to these people or not as Baptists because it's not their story. And they wouldn't say on this hand, like the Reformed people, well, we spent 150 years working out who the congregation is and who the presbyter is and how they relate to one another. If we stick a microphone notionally under John Wesley's nose when he stood at the bottom of a pit waiting for the shift to come off at four o'clock in the morning, ready to preach to them. And we say, excuse me, Mr. Wesley, can we just interfere and just interrupt for a minute? Why are you here? He'd say, I'm here to offer Christ, to proclaim the gospel to these people who feel estranged from religion as it is in Britain at this time, and yet they must hear. There must be a way, and if they won't come to church, then I will go to them. In other words, in an, in an emphatic way in the Methodist tradition, deep in our bones, there is an evangelical spirit. Those who do not know can know and need to know. Now, I, in that, I'm not saying that therefore Methodism is better or worse than Baptists or Congregationists or anybody else. I'm saying that the story of our origins stands for different reasons. And therefore, when we stand in the Methodist tradition, we stand on that reason. Discipleship, Methodist style. Ours is an evangelical Christianity. Now, that term, evangelical, is used today to sometimes describe a hard, bigoted, right-wing, ethically and politically shaped Christianity. When I was in Leitland, some of the Methodist pastors there were deeply concerned that, in a sense, evangelical in some parts of the United States had somehow been hijacked and, and, and associated with particular po political positions rather than a description of the Christian heart and outlook. And some of them were saying to me, and it happened again in Korea last week at the World Methodist Council, how do we redeem that when we call ourselves evangelical, people don't hear immediately, bigoted, opinionated, closed? When in fact, when you look at the origins of the Methodist movement, evangelical means exactly the opposite. It means being open-hearted, it means generous, and it means being invitational. 
So when I say Methodists have an evangelical spirit, I don't mean that they adopt that hard, arrogant evangelism, but rather they adopt the invitation, walking free samples of Jesus Christ. I remember once when I was uh, at one of our Methodist conventions, Easter People, many, many years ago, and I'd been preaching that night at the event. And I got back to the hotel, and I was sat in the hotel lounge area and got talking to the preacher from the previous night who was a North American who belonged to a, a particular church. I'd never heard of it before in the southern states of America. And we had a really interesting conversation. He was a really nice chap. Uh, and we were talking about his sermon the night before, and he'd been at that night, and he, he said to me something I've never forgotten. He suddenly said to me, after a pause, you Methodists really want people to get to heaven, don't you? And I paused, I was completely thrown by this. So I, I, I heard myself saying, well, well yeah, yeah, don't all Christians? And he stroked his chin and he paused a minute. He said, yeah, I guess so. He said, but my church seems to spend an awful lot of time telling people what it's like not to get to heaven rather than encouraging them to get there. Now, a mood and tone is very important. And when Methodist Christianity at its best has been saying, we aspire to be people that when we come into contact with people and when we gather together in worship or faith, what happens is Abdul's prayer happens, that we are filled, fulfilled, and we become better people. Second is an emphasis on a big Holy Spirit. Methodist discipleship style, a big Holy Spirit. What do I mean? Well, the Holy Spirit is often experienced as the emboldener of faith, the one who gives courage. And Methodists believe that. The Holy Spirit is experienced often as the comforter in a time of great trial. And we believe that and we've experienced it, many of us. The Holy Spirit, we're told in the Scriptures, produces fruits in the Christian disciple. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, self-control, and so on and so forth. And Methodists cherish those as the necessary fruits for Christian holiness. Getting better and better. And the Holy Spirit bestows gifts. They're referred to in our Acts passage. Uh, and uh, in other parts of the New Testament, the gifts of the Spirit are, are worked out as to be gifts of knowledge and wisdom, the gift of prophecy and faith, the gift of healing and working miracles, discerning of spirits, speaking of tongues and the interpretation of tongues. All gifts given by the Holy Spirit for the common good, given to some for the sake of others. And although Methodists aren't Pentecostalists in the classic sense of belonging to the Pentecostal tradition, though just incidentally, nowadays when the World Methodist Council meets together, as it did last week in Korea, about uh, a fifth to a quarter of the Christians, Methodists and Wesleyan Christians coming from South America, very clearly emerge as newer Methodist churches from a Pentecostal tradition. It's very interesting. But classically over the three centuries, we are not classically Pentecostalists. 
but we gladly experience and receive and celebrate all the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Our prayer healing ministry couldn't exist without an implicit and explicit reliance upon the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to note this morning is that all this wonderful ministry of the Holy Spirit, emboldening and comforting and producing fruits and giving gifts, are all works in Christian believers. They are, if you like, all blessings given to the church. So to explain what I mean by a big Holy Spirit, we have to note that in addition to, not separate to, in addition to all those things, Methodists have particularly emphasized the work of the Holy Spirit abroad in the world. Put very simply, we do not believe that the Holy Spirit is some kind of captive domestic being at the beck and call of the Christian church. The Spirit is at work in the world and has been ever since she brooded over the waters of creation recorded in Genesis. In fact, if you note all the Old Testament references to the Ruach, the wind, the Spirit of God, occur in creation and restoration before ever the Christian church was born. She existed before in the Godhead and will long after. The Holy Spirit is, to coin a phrase, the go-between God, as one Anglican wrote in a classic book. Going between the active space, between heaven and earth, between sin and redemption, present in everything that God has made, convicting and convincing and rescuing and restoring and revealing the loving nature of God everywhere in everything. That despite of the fall of humanity and the sin that, falls, that uh, creates the fall of creation, there remains presence and pregnant through all space and time, the Holy Spirit of God. Now that's a big doctrine. When I worked at Cliff College, one of my favorite stories from there was that we used to send our young folk off to mission. They went on mission three times a year. And particularly over Easter, they went on mission three, three weeks. And we used to gather them together in the chapel college chapel and in, in teams, about eight, ten of them, and we used to make sure, A, that they had a program and knew where they were going. This is before sat-nav, so have you got the directions? And then we prayed for them and prayed about that, and I always asked them, as the principal of the college at that time, I always said to them, why are you going? And one bright spark would always say, well, we're going to, we're going to go to wherever, let's, let's think of Derbyshire, uh, we're going to go to Belper. And we're going to the churches in Belper, and what are you going to do there? We're going to take the love of God in Jesus Christ to the people who live there. And I'd say, okay, God bless you, off you go. And then they'd come back three weeks later with all their mucky washing and all dive into the showers and to the laundry room, and then we'd meet again in the chapel, and I'd say to them, all right, three weeks ago, you said that you were going to go to the poor people of Belper, and you were going to take the love of God in Jesus Christ to them. What happened? He was already there, they said. 
What do you mean he's already there? Well, we went thinking, and then suddenly we discovered that all sorts of things were happening. So I said, so you've done nothing for three weeks then, have you? No, 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 they said. What happened was when we realized that the Holy Spirit was already there, we just decided to join in. Now, what they're talking about almost by instinct is a big Holy Spirit. Methodist discipleship is characterized by a big Holy Spirit. And lastly, thirdly, as time's getting on, Methodists emphasize a Catholic spirit, an evangelical spirit, a big Holy Spirit, a Catholic spirit. Now, by Catholic, I don't mean here Roman Catholic. I mean Catholic in the sense of encompassing and wide. This might be taught as open-handedness or a generosity of spirit or a humility about yourself or a willingness to work with others and sometimes a willingness to see good in others. The notion of the Catholic spirit is often connected to John Wesley himself. In 1755, he preached and wrote a sermon, which was published in his books of sermons that were published at the time, called The Catholic Spirit. And in it, Wesley outlined, first of all, the essentials of Christian experience, about being born again and offering Christ and all those things, and his resolve in a time of very, very fractured religious situations, not least with Roman Catholics in 18th century Britain. His resolve to work with, quote, all those who honor Christ and promote his kingdom, even if I differ from them in doctrinal matters. Earlier, he'd published another sermon in which he'd first explored these kind of ideas called A Caution Against Bigotry. John Wesley was absolutely incandescent where he came across any Methodist society that he thought were being bigots. Bigots either about unbelievers or bigots about other Christian believers. He just would not have it. And in both these sermons, Wesley spelt out his warning against sectarianism, against setting people apart in ways that divide brothers from brother and sister from sister and prevents Christians from understanding that God is present and working in fellowships and parties and denominations and agencies and people of goodwill wherever they are, even outside your church. And Wesley urges that this is the example that Methodist Christians should take. He preached this Catholic spirit from an obscure Old Testament passage in the second book of Kings, which will be well known to you all. It's when Jehu questions Jehonabab. It's well known to you all, isn't it? But if you look in two Kings, the dialogue goes like this. Jehu says, is your heart right as my heart is with your heart? And Jehonabab answers, it is. If it be, then give me your hand. And Wesley urges that that is the body language of Methodist disciples. Is your heart right as my heart is right? It is. Well, give me your hand. Give me your hand to work together for what this big Holy Spirit is doing in the world You see, Jehu's question isn't about Jehonabab's opinions. It's about his spirit, 
his attitude, his aspirations about the world, about humanity. How does he regard his neighbor? In a word, it's, is there love in your heart? Wesley pleads that even allowing for differences of opinion, and boy do we live in a world with differences of opinion, we must not let this ever stand in the way of affection in Christ for each other. He put it very, very simply in the end of that sermon. Though we can't think alike, may we not love alike. And Wesley's sermon goes on to explain that while Christians have differing modes of public worship and differing ideas about church government and differing practices about whether or not adults should or shouldn't be baptized, far more important than any of these things is the question, do you love God and do you love the humanity God has made? I uh, attended, as I closed, the uh, graduation ceremony for our disciple graduates this year. On Monday, we had a nice communion service, didn't we? Round a little table in a common room, sharing bread and wine together. But I said to them exactly what Jacob said earlier on. You have not become better disciples because you've read an awful lot of the Bible this year even though it's probably very good to read large chunks of the sacred book. The proof of the pudding in discipleship will be having read all this, having studied and steeped yourself in God's word, do you now resemble more our Lord Jesus Christ than you did? And what John Wesley was saying was, on top of the belief systems that are just wonderful, ordinary, orthodox Christianity, if you stand in the tradition in which I stand, have you got an evangelical heart? Do you offer Christ by word and deed, together and apart? Do you live life as if the Holy Spirit of God is a big Holy Spirit, not captive to you and your ideas and your congregation, but abroad restoring all things into the world? And are you going to get to a point where, like Cliff College students even, you said, we joined in. And finally, are you going to be characterized as Christian people who say, if your heart is right as my heart is right, then give me your hand. And together we make this place that God has given us with all its wonder and all its terror, a place which can be filled, fulfilling, and make us all better. Amen.